everybody. So excited for this episode of the Tax Chick Podcast. We're talking cross-border today. We're going to talk about whenever you may have some ties to the United States. And uh, I'm bringing on fellow Tax Chick, Lori Keithley. And Lori and I ended up connecting, I guess, about a year and a half ago now. We ended up having a mutual client and got into some great conversations and, and thought it would be wonderful to have her on the podcast because we've both noticed numerous times in our careers where people have ties to the U.S. but don't even realize it. And when you do have a tie to the U.S., um, of course, there's sometimes a tax filing obligation. And it's really important to know what that obligation might be and make sure that you're compliant. And so we thought it might be helpful to do a really foundational podcast episode where we're just talking big picture. Here are some of the issues to keep in mind. Here are some of the red flags to watch out for. And so if you're listening to this and some of this is resonating with you, our advice is always to seek um, some counsel from a cross-border um, accountant or a lawyer. Um, there's certain cases where you're going to hear us indicate that maybe an immigration lawyer is who you need to see. And so we do provide that advice in the course of the episode. We're going to capture a few different topics today. We're doing a bit more than I normally do because there's so much to talk about in this particular arena. So we're going to tackle, are you a U.S. citizen? So what are some of the red flags to keep in mind? We're also going to tackle some of the basic filing requirements if you are a Canadian resident who is a U.S. citizen. So even if you're living in Canada, but you're a U.S. citizen, what are your tax filing obligations? Um, We'll talk briefly about renouncing U.S. citizenship. So giving up your U.S. citizenship. What's involved with that? And what are some of the tax implications that you need to keep in mind? We have a number of clients who own property in the U.S., but might be Canadian residents and Canadian citizens. What are some of the things to think about if you're renting the property, if you sell the property, um, how do you own the property? And for more in-depth on that topic, I have an episode from season two of the podcast where we talk about snowbirds, Um, myself and my guest, Stephen Flynn. We talk about if you're a snowbird and you're going down to the U.S., some of the things to keep in mind from a tax perspective. The last topic that we talk about is about your work and your employment. So what happens if you're living one place, but you're actually working somewhere else? And if those two things cross over jurisdictions, um, what are some of the things you have to keep in mind? What do you potentially have to tell your employer? How does this impact your tax filing? And I think a lot more people are falling into that category this day and age because of the pandemic and because people are not necessarily working in an office anymore. Um, There's a lot more flexibility in terms of where and how you work. And so those are some of the big topics that we're going to cover today. Now, a little bit about Lori before we move on to the episode. So Lori specializes in U.S.-Canada cross-border structures and taxation for individuals, corporate entities, and trusts. She is passionate about cross-border residency and move planning, business expansion, and cross-border investment property acquisition. She assists clients across Canada and the U.S. with a focus on U.S. citizens residing in Canada, as well as Canadians who have moved to the U.S. She excels at finding ways to minimize taxes in the ever-changing U.S. and Canadian tax regulations, and Lori has spent her career at Forbes Anderson LLP, which is a member of UHY International. 
And if you're interested in learning a bit more about some of these cross-border issues, there are two other podcast episodes that I will um, suggest you you listen to. So both of them are actually from um, season two of the podcast. We we have some discussions uh, with Stephen Flynn, a cross-border tax specialist, about um, the discussion of snowbirds and owning property in the States. And then also I speak with fellow tax chick uh, Jamie Zoll. And we talk a bit about um, salt tax, state and local tax uh, in the U.S. And so if you're selling services or wares to the U.S., uh, when are you subject to that? And when do you have to be sort of careful about it? So I do commend those episodes to your listening as well. But I have talked long enough, and I am sure you're very eager to get on to this episode. So without further ado, I give to you my conversation with Lori. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Tax Chick Podcast. I have a fellow tax chick on the podcast with me today. It's a new friend who I just sort of met uh, today over um, over our uh, platform, but I've spoken to you by email before, and it is Lori Keithley. And so Lori, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Amanda. And Lori and I connected actually on a client file some time ago, and, and Lori is a specialist in, in U.S.-Canada cross-border structuring. And so we started talking about this, this concept of how many of our clients are, are having issues where they're somehow connected to the U.S., and it feels like more and more um, I'm needing to to seek the advice of someone with some cross-border specialty and thought it might be kind of fun to have Lori on to talk about some big picture issues. But before we get into um, U.S.-Canada cross-border tax issues, um, and I know everyone's pretty excited to hear that conversation, we, we thought we'd start out by, uh, by doing the same two kind of preview questions that I always do um, on an episode. And uh, you've agreed to, to answer these for me, Lori. So we're going to jump right in. Um, the first one is, what is the last podcast episode you listened to or your favorite podcast? Yeah, so I think I'll talk about my favorite podcast. And it was actually probably the last one that I listened to. And it's the You're Wrong About podcast. I guess, I, I don't know if you've, if you've come across it, but it sort of breaks down um, mainstream ideas or thoughts that people have um, in society and, and sort of takes them a little bit deeper. But the most recent episode actually that I listened to was on the U S electoral college. Um, cause I'd always wondered specifically how that works. So they kind of break that down and talk about its origins. Um, but they go through all sorts of different, um, topics. There was a, a large princess Diana, um, seven episode, uh, series that they did that, that talked about her life. So all sorts of different things, but I just find it really interesting. That's a new one. I haven't heard that one. I've I've been having some really good suggestions with my last couple of guests, and mm-hmm. I was going to get rid of this question, and now like I don't want to because I <laughs> this is how I'm I'm coming up with all my own new podcasts to listen to is by listening to what my guests are listening to. I I think I need to listen to that one on the U.S. Electoral College because I am just perpetually confused when election time yeah. comes, and I and I try to like watch a bit of CNN or something to figure out what's going on, and I still mm-hmm. am very confused. So I I just wrote this down. I will make this available in the show notes for anybody else who who wants to check this podcast out. That's a that sounds great. And then yeah, I guess my other cool. question is um, because we've never really texted or DM'd or anything, so I, I don't that's know the true. answer to this. But <laughs> what is the emoji that you would use most often when you're texting? So 
the one that I, I think gets the most use, I actually went back through my phone to, to take a look, but, you know, honest answers here is <laughs> the one with all the teeth. And I had to look up what it actually was. It says it's a grimace emoji. Uh, I probably don't use it how it's supposed to be used because I just use it for everything, you know, just to smooth over situations or I was thinking about how I would use it in professional setting, maybe communicating some bad news to a client. And then you would just put that emoji in there. It just kind of softens the blow a little bit, I think. I I like it. I, I find lately I've been using a lot of the like the little person who has their hands over the face, like just sort of like I'm mortified or yeah. or that same little person who kind of has their arms like out, like, I don't know, that that kind of look. I've been using those two a lot lately. I don't yeah, know the arm, what's going on in my life. <laughs> the arms out one is probably a close second, I would say. Like, I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm going to test out this little... I'll test out this grimace one with somebody and and sort of see see what reaction I get if if I get confusion or if uh, if it sort of takes off because I I like it I don't think I've ever used that one before really oh <laughs> it's a great one a lot of different situations well there you go there you go all right well I I'm excited to dive into these topics with you today because I think that there's probably a lot of people listening who are a bit curious about what potentially they need to know if there's some connection to the U.S. And so we're going to try to cover a bunch of topics today, perhaps a few more than we normally cover, but that's because we're going to go very high level on a few of the issues. And so we're going to start with sort of that question of, am I a U.S. citizen? Which which maybe sounds like a silly question to ask, but there's been so many times in my career where somebody has stumbled upon the fact that they're a U.S. citizen and didn't even realize it. So very, very broad level, we'll talk about some of the ways you could potentially be a U.S. citizen. Um, we're also going to talk about some of the basic filing requirements. So you know, why do we care that we're a U.S. citizen or you're a U.S. citizen? What is the requirements of you know, a Canadian resident who's a U.S. citizen? or vice versa. Um, we're also going to speak very briefly to renunciation of U.S. citizenship from a tax perspective only, because neither of us are, are immigration attorneys. So we're going to leave that to those specialists, but we'll talk about it very briefly from a tax perspective and things to keep in mind um, when you're deciding to renounce your citizenship. And then in addition, we want to talk a bit about property ownership in the U.S., uh, we do have a lot of Canadian residents who are owning property in the U.S. and some things to sort of keep in mind. And then finally, if we if we just blow through all these topics and, and keep going, we will try to cover the idea of spending time in the U.S. or working remotely in the U.S. or if you're a U.S. citizen working in Canada and some of the big picture things that you need to keep in mind from, again, a tax perspective and a tax filing perspective if you're in either of those situations. So this is a lot, but I, I'm really excited to cover these topics. I believe that we can do it. Let's dive right in to the big question of, am I a U.S. citizen? So what, what are your thoughts on that, Lori? What are some of the things that people need to keep in mind? I come across this more often than I think, you know, than you think that you would. It's often situations where I would say the most common that I've seen would be someone who was born in the U.S. but never lived there. So it may have been that your parents were traveling there or there was some sort of compelling reason 
um, a hospital there that was, you know, made sense to be born in, um, sort of all sorts of different reasons. But your parents were not U.S. citizens. You were born there. And then maybe four days later, you were back in Canada, let's say. Or you were born there, maybe lived until you were age two and your family moved to Canada. So those situations, you know, generally, if you are born in the U.S., even if you never lived there or spent time there, you are pretty much always considered a U.S. citizen. And I say pretty much always because there's sometimes, you know, some wild outliers where they fall into a, a specific fact pattern. So again, that's why I generally urge people to speak to an immigration attorney and just get this clarity. Um, but that, I would say that's sort of one of the most popular situations. Um, a second one would be if you were born in Canada or elsewhere, but your parents are U.S. citizens, um, you know, maybe you don't have a U.S. passport, but you have this birthright citizenship. So both your parents are U.S. citizens. You know, sometimes people don't even know that their parents are U.S. citizens because they grew up in Canada. So, so that's also a, a common one that I do see. And that generally is going to qualify you for that. And I'd say the third and, and maybe the more tricky situation would be one of your parents is a U.S. citizen and you were born outside of the U.S. And, and these ones have a lot of different criteria. So if you think that might be you, you definitely want to speak to, to an immigration attorney. And, you know, the criteria here would be how long your parents lived in the U.S. So if they lived there long enough to pass that citizenship to you, um, which parent it was, whether the, your parents were married. Um, so those types of things would determine birthright. Um, and so that's what we've come across. And it's one of the first questions that I ask when I am getting to know a new client is, is there any possibility that you could be a U.S. citizen? Because I don't want to put a percentage on it, but it comes up more frequently than you would think. Well, and I mean, you're you're practicing in, in U.S. Canada cross border, um, so I'm sure it, it's popping up a lot for you there. I, I'm finding that, ironically, that's not part of my practice, but it pops up a lot for us as well. And it's it's always that. Oh, by the way, statement right. that happens, right? Yes. I I remember one of them. It was we had finished an entire estate planning meeting for this couple who owned a farm in, in southern Saskatchewan. And and there was no indication through any of the data that we had taken from them that there was any connection to the US. And as they were like walking out the door, um, the we we had just been starting to draft. The the wife said, Oh, by the way, I was born in the US. Is that a big deal? And um, we kind of went, whoa, you know, hold the boat. We got to deal with this stuff now. And and so it started us down that journey. And I think since then, I've kind of flipped the order of my questioning as well, similar to what you're saying. And now I usually start with that question and then I get a weird raised eyebrow of why are you right. asking me this? And and then I have to proceed to explain and then almost dig a bit further. You know, where were you born? Where were your parents born? What's your parents' citizenship? And start to ask some of those questions because – there's a lot more connection, I think, between these two countries than than oftentimes people even realize. Yeah, I would agree. And the other one I wondered about is is green cards, if we can touch on that really quickly in connection with citizenship, because my recollection is that you have to be be somewhat careful um, if you had a green card but didn't necessarily like formally surrender it or something like that. Yeah, that's another one I see a lot of. And this one actually might be more common. 
Um, so maybe Canadians who went and worked in the U.S. for several years, they had the opportunity to apply for a green card or their employer, you know, through their employer, something like that. And then maybe a few years later, they moved back to Canada and kind of forgot about it. Um, just assumed that, well, now it's expired. I don't need to do anything. You know, I don't have um, the green card anymore. And generally from my discussion with um, immigration attorneys is that's actually not the case. And you need to formally relinquish your green card and, and complete a form and actually send it back to the U.S. Um, and so a lot of people either don't know that or haven't done that. And so that is, I guess, my second question is, have you ever had a green card? Um, because there are some implications there that we'll get into a little bit later. Um, but important to know, and same with the planning that you're doing as well. Um, if they haven't formally relinquished that, it could impact, you know, things like a state tax or just in general, any tax reorganizations that you might be working on. Yeah, that's, I, I've heard that one a few times now where people have had a green card and they kind of assume it's like expired milk. Like you just kind of throw it out and it, it goes away and it, it doesn't. Um, there's there's some formalities involved in that. And, and I think that can pop up quite often because a lot of people were kind of going down to the States and either working or going to school and then come back and, and you kind of forget about it. You don't think it's an issue. So those are hopefully some very high level issue identification for people who are listening as to when when you might need to ask some more questions and maybe seek the advice of an immigration lawyer um, just to see whether or not you're falling into those those categories. So I guess moving on to the next thing is is, well, why do we care about any of this? So I mean, we care about it on this podcast because we're thinking about tax, of course. We're thinking, you know, what are the tax consequences of, of being a U.S. citizen or, or somehow having a tie to the U.S.? And so maybe we can talk a little bit about some of the basic filing requirements. So perhaps starting first with if you're a Canadian resident, so you're living in Canada, but you have U.S. citizenship, what is the general rule for, for filing? You know, there's there's many U.S. citizens living in Canada, so um, I obviously come across this a lot. And the main, I guess, differences here are that the U.S. taxes based on citizenship, and Canada, as most people are aware, does not. It taxes based on residency. Um, so there's already a little bit of a disconnect there, as you can imagine. And as a U.S. citizen, you're considered a tax resident of the U.S and subject to the same tax filing requirements that you would be if you resided in the U.S. So you need to file every single year a full U.S. tax return and do all of the reporting just as if you lived there. Um, generally, you wouldn't be subject to any specific filings for a state because um, you don't live in that state. But the federal filing, a federal 1040, you may have heard that form number or come across it. Um, is pretty much always required for U.S. citizens. Um, and then going along with that, there's all sorts of different attachments, treaty elections, and forms, depending on your situation, that get included with that tax return. Um, one of the ones that specifically applies to Canadians usually is the reporting of all of your non-U.S. bank investment and retirement accounts. The IRS and, and Treasury wants to know all about that and about all of your assets and how much money you have and where. Um, so there's some 
additional reporting forms there that get included with your tax return, some that are filed separately. And, and why we care is because the penalties for not filing are very substantial. Um, so if they do find out about it, and, and they can, um, that the penalties are, are quite substantial. Yeah, no, I that's a that's a fabulous summary of it because I, I think that a lot of times people think, well, I'm filing in Canada and I'm reporting all my income in Canada and I don't otherwise have an income source from the U.S. So why does the U.S. care? I've, I've heard that one a lot. And so it's very important to kind of recognize that there are these two different systems of taxation. And, and I think that the federal versus state taxation in the U.S. is – is kind of akin or sort of like the provincial tax system versus the federal tax system in Canada. It's the same idea. And there is a filing obligation here. And if you fail to file, there are potential penalties. But unless you're getting to the level of like a criminal penalty, I don't believe that our monetary penalties are quite as severe as the failure to file monetary penalties in the U.S. Yeah, that's correct. Um I mean, just one example, if you have, um, let's say, a your own corporation, you're a business owner, you might be the, the only shareholder of that corporation, um, but that's how you operate, and you are a U.S. citizen, there's a specific filing that gets attached to your return, and the penalty for not filing it is $25,000 U.S. per year. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, that ends up very quickly. It's it's unlike, I guess, and our penalty structure here in Canada. Um, so definitely something to be mindful of and, and to just understand that, yes, you, although you live in Canada, you are required to report your worldwide income as a U.S. citizen on a U.S. tax return. And I'm also assuming, and you may not know the answer to this, but I'm also assuming that the the response of oh oops I didn't know I was a U.S. citizen is probably not going to get you out of the twenty five thousand dollar penalty. <laughs> I mean, there's there are some ways around penalties. Definitely, you want to speak to um, like a cross border accountant or a U.S. preparer about that. But um, you know, there are some ways to mitigate the penalties for sure. If it was um, non-willful, I think that's that's generally what you're looking at. And I guess that would be situational, whether or not you truly knew you were a U.S. citizen um, and truly were aware of your obligations. You know, there are there's some room for mistakes there or misunderstanding for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, and I guess too, for people that are listening, um, if you do end up having to file both in Canada and in the U.S., our, our respective countries have a treaty, a tax treaty, that tries in certain instances to minimize double taxation of the same income. Um, however, because our tax systems are slightly different in terms of what we tax and how we tax it, there isn't always that perfect kind of integration. And sometimes you will end up with a bit of a double taxation. But the the idea is that usually when you're filing in both countries, you're also claiming some form of relief under the treaty to avoid having that tax uh, occur to you twice on the same income. But again, all of this is fairly complex and and does this is not a do-it-yourself scenario. This is a, you know, who do you call? You call a US cross-border specialist when this sort of thing starts to happen. You need to hire someone who does this um, for a living because there's so many forms. I, I find that in particular about the US is anytime I take a course on that or am reviewing anything on it, they have so many forms. 
Mm-hmm. And I mean, I guess Canada does too, but it just feels like the U.S. has way more. And you can miss one little form and everything goes awry. So it's it's very important to, to have some expert um, advice when dealing with that. Yeah. And I laugh, but it, I think um, mainly because just when we think we have a full handle on every single form, then they'll release a hundred new forms. So it is not an exaggeration. (laughs) There are new forms added all the time or they change the form number and make it slightly different. um, Something like that. But it is a lot to navigate for, you know, someone who's never filed in the U S before, let's say, Um, you know, it's a little bit tricky unless, you know, maybe you've been doing them yourself for, 10, 15 years, it's still helpful to get um, a professional to review them just in case you're missing some of these um, extra attachments, I call them, that go along with your mm-hmm. return and accompany them because those are the ones that attract the penalties generally. Agreed. Agreed. I, I think, yeah, the next time that we complain as Canadian advisors because CRA has introduced some new form, I'm going to try to remember what happens in the U.S. and have a bit more patience with what's happening in our country. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, so then maybe we should talk very briefly about this concept of renunciation. And and I mean, so we've talked about when you could potentially fall into being a U.S. citizen. We've talked about why we care in terms of what the filing obligation is. Well, what if we, what if we have somebody who says, I don't want to be a U.S. citizen anymore? Um, from a, a tax filing perspective, what are some of the things to keep in mind um, on renouncing your U.S. citizenship? Yeah, I mean, the first things I guess that or the first thing that I ask is, you know, why do you want to renounce? You know, just to make sure it is it is quite a big deal to a lot of people. Um, it may not be if you've never lived there and have no attachment. So, you know, start to think about that a little bit. Um, and then generally we get into what some of the tax implications might be. Um, and really they're driven by, I guess, a few factors that put you into a category. So we have a category called a covered expatriate and then a non-covered. Um, and really we care about the covered expatriate because those are the ones that generally have the tax implications. So what we wanted to determine is, you know, whether you are a covered expatriate and there's a few things that would put you into that category, basically three sort of main tests we want to look at. Um, And so one being, what is your net worth? And if it exceeds um, currently $2 million, likely you're you're going to be into that covered category that we call it. The second would be how much U.S. tax have you been paying? And, And this you may not know if you haven't actually been filing. So it's something that would need to be calculated for sure. Um, And if you have been paying an average amount of tax that exceeds a certain threshold and it's indexed to inflation, so it does change uh, year to year, um, that would make you a covered expatriate. And generally, these are sort of more higher net worth situations. Um, And the third is actually if you renounce your citizenship and you're not compliant, um, that can actually make you a covered expatriate. So I have seen some situations where some individuals just decided they didn't want to be a citizen anymore, booked their appointment with the consulate, renounced, but had not been keeping up with their tax obligations. So that's a little bit tricky to navigate after the fact. So I definitely, you know, encourage you to to speak to some professionals if this is something that you're thinking about uh, to assist you with the process. 
And my understanding is that with a covered expatriate, although when I first heard that phrase, I thought, oh, that sounds positive, like you're covered. Um, It's not. It's bad. Um, You Mm -hmm. don't want to be covered because covered expatriates have an additional sort of filing obligations and it's just a it's a lot more complicated and that they can also have these sort of latent tax or or uh, I don't know uh, long-term tax implications that they have to watch out for versus a non-covered expatriate it's a bit of a cleaner process for them to sever those ties at least from a tax perspective and kind of move on yeah yeah so the the covered expatriate sort of talked about you know how you might become one um, then we want to talk about how you could avoid becoming one because really the issue here is that there's what we like to call an exit tax um, that can apply um, and it's on all of your assets at the time of that you renounce. Um, so we want to try and shift you either from becoming a covered expatriate or at least minimize what that tax would be. So we always want to do some planning in that area. And as you mentioned, um, moving forward, if you're a covered expatriate, you can run into some issues with, you know, if you want to give money to your children in the future, um, there's some gift reporting um, situations that can pop up later. Or if your children are U.S. citizens, there may be some implications with that. So certainly you just want to get a full understanding of what does it mean for you specifically if you're going to renounce um, and just make sure you have a handle on that before you go ahead and book that appointment. Absolutely. I think this is another example of when you'd really want to get some expert advice. This is not something that you just want to figure out on your own. Um, you do want to you do want to seek some expert advice and and make sure there's somebody kind of helping you through the process because otherwise you could miss something pretty major and then uh, all the work that you've done is kind of for naught um, because you've missed some major form or or some reporting obligation. I wonder if we should move to a bit of a discussion of the other thing that I find I come across at least quite often with my clients, which is I have a Canadian resident who buys property in the U.S. And they may or may not be snowbirds, but you know we have this now connection between um, a Canadian resident owning something in the U.S. Is there, is there some thoughts you have on that in terms of um, maybe things to watch out for or some of the basic um, tax things or tax filing obligations that people might want to keep in mind? Yes, I have a lot of thoughts actually in this area because it's very, very common. And, and like you said, it, it's another way to create a tie to the U.S. Um, so you know, maybe more people that aren't U.S. citizens sort of um, get put in this bucket. And I think there's a a couple of different um, scenarios here, but just focusing, I guess, on individuals who are just buying, you know, maybe a winter home, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know you've touched upon this um, in another episode, so I won't really get into too much detail there. But generally, if a Canadian is buying a U.S. property, there's going to be some tax implication at some point. And whether that's now if you're renting it or whether that's when you sell it or whether that's when you die hate to get a little morbid on it but um (laughs) it does happen obviously um so if um if it's if it's a straightforward situation you know it doesn't even in that case it doesn't hurt to run it by um a cross-border accountant or lawyer tax lawyer in this area who has expertise just to, to make sure you're on the right track i would say that 
it doesn't just because you're buying a property, it doesn't mean that you not need to get overly creative with a structure for it. Um, if you're just going to be going there and spending a few months there each year. But I think some things to be aware of are if you're going to rent out the property, um, you know, you do need to get a taxpayer ID number. You do need to file tax returns um, just and, you know, also report that on your Canadian return as well. Something some people miss sometimes thinking that they just need to report it in the U.S., but not also in Canada. Um, so that's some, something to be aware of. I think um, another thing to be aware of is when you sell the property had a lot of people selling over the last couple of years just due to not being able to use their property for the, the travel restrictions. And um, there's pretty much always some tax to pay um, or at minimum a return to be filed when you sell. And I'm not going to get into sort of all of the specifics, but there's a withholding tax for non-residents um, that applies when you sell your property. And generally it's um, withheld by and remitted to the IRS by the um, by the escrow agent and then you need to file a tax return to get back the amount that's owed to you because they they usually withhold at a higher rate than you actually owe in tax um, so that process you know we've been working through that recently for a lot of our clients and it can be very frustrating. I just want to sort of get the word out about that. Um, and we deal with a lot of advisors on this as well that are assisting their clients. And it takes time. It's It can take over a year to see that refund back. The IRS is very, very backlogged in this area. And so not uncommon to see, you know, a refund even two years later from the sale of a property. So it's just something I want to make sure people are really have in the back of their minds, not to say you shouldn't sell, but don't plan to have 100% of the proceeds from that property available to you immediately um, when you well, do sell. Well, and, and almost no different than when we're thinking about a Canadian sale, because I think a lot of times people forget about this in Canada as well, that unless it's your principal residence and we can fall within the exemptions, if you're selling another piece of property, there's there's going to be there's going to be a tax to pay. You're not going to get mm -hmm. the full amount of that back. And it's very similar in the U.S. And I agree with you. I found, especially during the pandemic, we had a number of clients who had always been going down to the States. They had always been snowbirds and, and they just decided they weren't going to do that anymore. It was too hard to get down there. It was too hard to deal with it. And so then they started renting out the property thinking, mm -hmm. okay, well, I'll just report my rent in Canada. Uh, no, um, that's not going to work um, because, of course, prior to that time, they would have had no other reason to be filing in the U.S. And they weren't down there long enough to to have to worry about, um, you know, being outside the country for more than the number of days. And so they just thought they could keep trucking along. And I think there's going to be a few people that are going to get hit by that um, in the coming years because the IRS um, – does know what you're doing, um, similar to CRA. There's a lot of information exchange that happens between the two countries, which is important to know. Um, my understanding is even at the border that information about who is crossing the border is given to the tax authorities in both countries. So they know exactly how long you've been in one country or another. And uh, bank transactions are viewed, um, property sale transactions are viewed. So it's it's not enough to just sort of sit back and say, well, they'll probably never find out anyway, um, because they probably will, I think is important to remember. 
Yeah, I think at some point, and, and it may take a few years, but I think the main one too may be with, you know, if you if you mortgage the property, obviously someone is aware that, that you own this mm-hmm. property. Um, but bank transactions too, that's a big one. If you open up a U.S. bank account, you know, Canada is generally going to know about it. Um, mm-hmm. So I think just keeping it in mind, um, the U.S. does have... Um, a little bit of relief if you rent it just for a few days. Um, generally, you don't have to report it, but that's something where I would encourage you to, to definitely get some guidance on it. You don't want to just make that assumption for yourself. Um, but if you're certainly if you're renting it for more than two weeks, um, you do need to look at filing a tax return. Well, and I also really appreciated the advice that you gave about structuring because you you made a comment earlier on where you said it doesn't ne- mean that you necessarily need to create this complicated structure. And I, I really appreciated that because I think there's this assumption that, oh, when I'm now dealing in another jurisdiction, it means I need to create all these boxes and trusts and bank accounts and joint ventures and and it just needs to become so complicated. And many times the conclusion that's reached is, actually, all we have to do is just have you own it personally. (laughs) Um, It's about the other obligations that come along with it. And so, you know, don't assume that you need necessarily a really complex structure. You might in Mm -hmm. some instances, Um, but it it might not be the structure that's complicated. It's just making sure you know all your filing obligations that might be a bit more complex and structured in terms of the the overall requirements for you. So I I really appreciated that, that suggestion. Yeah, I would say, I mean, 90% and and even though my client base is predominantly cross-border or some sort of U.S. connection, um, like 90% are holding them personally, but it has to be right given given your situation. We do use partnerships. We do use trust sometimes mm-hmm. um, for various reasons. So definitely want to, to get that guidance before you go ahead and, and everyone has different reasons for doing it. I will say, you know, I've seen one in the last year or two where someone had a Canadian business and they, they actually purchased a, a U.S. property in their Canadian operating company. Um, that's something where, you know, I would probably not advise. So if that's something you're considering, definitely reach out to your accountant and sort of discuss. Um, once you put property into structure, sometimes it is hard to get it out. So definitely advanced um, planning is warranted. And the other thing I'll just touch on really quickly, because it comes up a lot, I hear this all the time, is, oh, can I use a U.S. LLC to hold Mm. property very similar to what U.S. residents use? I'm going to say no, (laughs) almost 99% no, but you will hear about it, especially if you're down in the U.S. talking to people, talking to, you know, your neighbor in the condo, you know, they hold it through an LLC for Um, legal liability protection because they're going to rent it. It just doesn't work for Canadians. And so that's, if that's the biggest takeaway that anyone has today, that would be Mm -hmm. the one to narrow in on because that is very problematic for Canadians or can be. Well, and I think it's also really important to remember that a lot of the, the planning that we're talking about here or how to own things is, is, is worrying about when you're alive and how you would own something and what the filing obligation is. But what I think is also very important to remember is that the U.S., um, for estate purposes, taxes things very differently than Canada. 
And again, the states have their own rules in terms of either even even as small as things like probate fees, right? Um, depending mm-hmm. which state you own the property in. And so not only is it important to ask the question about what is my obligation now and what is the tax I have to pay now, but then also to ask, well, what happens if I die? And usually we're able to structure it such that the problem doesn't happen for spouses until the last of the spouse to die. But eventually that's going to happen. And and I always say to my clients, well, wouldn't you rather your kids kind of know what the plan of attack is and, and know an advisor there they can reach out to? Because even the process of getting the property transferred um, or getting the property sold and who has to sign for it and whether there's a filing at the local courthouse that needs to be made, all of those things are are slightly more complex if that's not where everyone is living at that time. Mm-hmm. And so it is good to inquire about those things as well um, because then at least you're a bit more prepared. But lots of people have these vacation properties um, down in Arizona or in California or in Florida, and um, it's often hard to know what to do once they've passed away. I wonder then if maybe we move to kind of our last topic, which is the other one that I think we're all seeing quite often, especially during COVID, where people are not necessarily living where they work anymore. We've now got this new fangled way of doing things where you might be living in another country or another province um, where you're not necessarily working. And so if you're spending some time in the U.S. and you're working remotely or you're spending time in Canada, but you're working remotely in the U.S., what are some of the things that that you need to keep in mind? Yeah, so I guess this kind of goes back to, you know, maybe you just purchased a property in Arizona and you plan to spend some time there, but um, you work for a Canadian company, you do work remote, so you say, well, maybe I should just spend my winter there working um, because who's really going to know? And so that's kind of where I think um, just the workforce mindset has shifted a little bit over the last couple of years. And um, there are tax implications or can be tax implications of doing that. And there can also be um, legal immigration implications of doing that too. Um, Won't get too much into those, but I think some things to be aware of um, is one, if you're going on vacation for two weeks, let's say, and and you happen to check your email and, you know, you're just sort of keeping in the loop on what's happening, but you're not really doing any work, you know, that's probably fine. Probably not going to cause an issue. Again, if you're concerned or you're doing more than that, probably speak to um, a tax accountant or an immigration attorney. Um, depending on what your activities are in the U.S. But um, if it's going to extend out, you know, four months, something like that, you're going to be spending time there working. Your employer probably should know about it. So it's one thing that they may be offside on some payroll obligations for you in the U.S. and whether or not they're going to want to adhere to those um, is something that by not telling them, you haven't given them the opportunity to become compliant. Um, so it's definitely a conversation you want to have with your employer. And and one thing I'm finding now is that for remote working jobs in Canada, the posting may say, you know, ability to work anywhere in Canada. So the consensus is, is normally that if you have a job with a Canadian employer, you're working from Canada. And, and why it's important is because 
work is generally sourced to the country that it's performed in. So wherever that service is that you're providing, wherever you are physically, wherever you're sitting, is, is really who has the right to tax it. Um, and it can also create filing obligations for you if you're spending time and working in the U.S., even for a Canadian employer, um, from the standpoint of that Canada-U.S. tax treaty that we touched on, um, there may be some relief there for you and you're not actually subject to tax, but you have to file something to take advantage of that or to notify um, that you are relying on those um, exemptions in the treaty. So I think, um, you know, any length of time you're spending in the U.S., um, do speak to a cross-border accountant about if it's, you know, you are doing work there. And I think if you're self-employed and doing work, that's even more important. Um, you know, you may be offside on a work permit um, and you may be creating U.S. taxation for that business. Um, so definitely want to you want to get some some guidance in that area. Well, and I do remember at the beginning of COVID that I remember reading about um, there were some relief that was provided for sort of the initial six months for people that like literally got stuck somewhere mm -hmm. else in another country. Um, but as you've indicated, it was it was limited and there was often some sort of filing requirement or election requirement um, to make sure that you were able to take advantage of that. And so very important to to seek some advice if you fall in that in that category. And I guess for anyone who's also um, perhaps just like selling um, services down to the U.S., there is another podcast episode from last season where we talk a bit about um, state and local tax obligations because very similar to our GST, HST obligations in Canada, um, you might get caught simply by by selling services or wares down to the U.S., even if you don't have an actual physical location down there. And so if you're if you're someone who's who's doing that, um, check out that other episode for some tips and tricks on on what you need to keep an eye out for. But yeah, I think this is this whole idea of people not necessarily living where they work is is going to be the new frontier. And mm -hmm. I think that our laws will catch up. But as of right now, um, it's still pretty complicated. And you do need to to make sure that, I mean, A, you're notifying your employer, which we're laughing about this. But I have heard a number of things over the last year where employers kind of found out that their employee was living in like a different province and they had no idea. And they found <laughs> out when they made the call for people to return to the office and their employee kind of said, yeah, I'm not living there anymore. So I'm going to keep working remotely. Um, so tell your employer that you've moved because even if you're moving within Canada, there's there's implications in terms of of what needs to be filed or perhaps it might impact your benefits plan or other non-tax things, right? So tell yeah. your employer. Um, but then also it, in particular, if you're living in another country, there could be this whole other tax filing obligation that could even be present on your employer for when they're sending you um, your monthly pay. And so very important to, to seek some advice. Now, is there anything else, Lori, in terms of, of sort of big picture advice or, or thoughts that you have in connection with people who've got this, this connection between Canada and the US? Any other sort of last minute advice or, or warnings that you would give? I think just that anytime it's the cross border, I call it cross border. Anytime there's both countries involved, it's complicated. Mm -hmm. um, there's almost no way around that. And, and just being mindful that 
just because something is um, taxed one way in Canada does not mean that it's taxed the same way in the U.S. Um, you know, one example we come across all the time, just briefly, is U.S. citizens in Canada that sell their Canadian principal residence. Mm. Um, generally excluded from tax in Canada, but there's an exemption limit in the U.S. So if your gain exceeds that amount, it's actually taxable to you in the U.S. And many people sort of forget about that or fail to plan for it. So if you do have any sort of connection to the U.S., um, either maybe your children are U.S. citizens because they moved to the U.S. and worked there and, and you live in Canada, so they're going to inherit your estate, you know, anything like that becomes an extra step or extra steps, I would say, um, in the planning process, you definitely need to get some guidance on that before um, you run into some issues or have some surprises. I think that's excellent advice. And I mean, it, it doesn't have to be scary. I think oftentimes our clients get really panicked when we start warning them about these things. Um there's always solutions, there's always options, but we can't it's a lot easier to do stuffing on a proactive basis than to to come in and try to fix it once once something has blown up. So if you're if you're listening to this and you're thinking, "Oh my goodness, I I might fall into one of these categories." I mean, don't panic. Um get in touch with someone who does who has cross-border expertise and and talk through your situation because then you can find out what your options are, what your responsibilities are and start planning for the future so you don't have to kind of live with that panic. Um but it definitely is it is a bit more complicated, I think, than people give it credit for. And um, it is something that you can fall into without even realizing it. And I think that's what makes it so scary. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm always happy to talk through a situation with someone. And sometimes it's okay. Sometimes it's actually, it, it isn't complicated, um, you know, just based on maybe they accidentally did things the right way or um, you know, they actually don't fall into that. Maybe they're not actually a U.S. citizen. So I think just having those conversations and putting your, your mind at ease so you can sleep a little better uh, really helpful. That's wonderful. I, I really appreciate your time today, Lori. These are these are issues that we're seeing pop up more and more and more. And I think it's really important to have some basic foundational information so that we can issue, identify, and try to provide some support. So I, I think this was extremely helpful and I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. Well, that is all we have time for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I hope we gave you some food for thought or at least made you laugh. Please see the show notes for any resource material that we reference throughout the episode and to find out more about my amazing guest today. And if you'd like to learn more about any of the topics that we covered on today's podcast or about other topics relating to tax in general, I do invite you to sign up for my monthly newsletter, Musings of a Tax Chick. And follow me on Instagram. My handle is at tax.chick. If you enjoy this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and also click subscribe so you make sure you never miss a new episode. Please note that the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast episode belong solely to the speakers and are not necessarily the views of the speaker's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. In addition, the information provided and discussed in this podcast is not legal advice. We encourage you to consult with your legal advisor for specific advice.